Um, Marshall called me around noon yesterday and was like, I'm not feeling too well. Maybe you want to postpone Riley's baptism. Our daughter was going to be baptized this day. And I said, yeah, let's just postpone it. He's like, I'm still going to preach. And then around 6 p.m. last night, he's like, I'm feeling really bad. I'm not going to be able to preach. So he asked me to step in. You can pray for him. It's always a great privilege to open up the scripture with you. Thanks for being flexible and uh, reading Luke 1 with us. One chap- we're in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 25. And so what we just read was the introduction to the Gospel of Luke, and we are seeing how the Lord is preparing us for the coming of His Son into the world. And so before we dive into that, let's go ahead and pray together. Our great God and and Heavenly Father, we ask that uh, during this time where we're considering Your Word, that You'd give us ears to hear and that You'd give us eyes to see, Uh, Just wonderful and beautiful things in your word. Exalt the Lord Jesus Christ among us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So with the birth of our our second daughter, I've been thinking about the future a lot lately. You know, we've been making plans, thinking about, you know, where will they go to school when they get older? Thinking about the friends they will have, thinking about the challenges they will face. Um... But, you know, the difficult thing about looking into the future is that uh, you can't do that. You can't look into the future. We don't know what is coming. Our perspective is, is always limited. But I remember at the beginning of 2020 kind of being in the same frame of mind. We had made plans to travel. We had these great ministry ambitions. In fact, it was uh, the beginning of Grace's building renovation uh, fundraiser that was going on, and it was at a vision casting dinner for the the new building that we heard that the NBA was shutting down and that schools would be closed for the next two weeks. So if I'm honest, when I think about the future, I'm kind of tempted to fear, you know, um, because things are just not in our control. You know, the next couple of years can be the best two years of your life. Or they can be particularly difficult. And when we think about it, the choice seems like to be between baseless optimism on the one hand or baseless pessimism on the other, which both seem like bad choices. But maybe there's a a third option. Maybe optimism or pessimism is not what we need. But what we need as we look into the unknowns of the future is hope. What we need is hope because in a fallen world, difficulty is kind of inevitable. Eventually, we we all face loss. It could be in 2023, it could be in 2050, but none of us is untouched by the grave challenges of this life. And so we need hope. Well, we don't need the hope of like, you know, the simple hope of I hope things work out okay. No, we need rock solid hope. We need biblical hope. And so this morning, we need to know what is and what will be in order to sustain us as we look into the future and give us, we need hope to give us ground to stand upon moment to moment. We need gospel certainty. We need to know that the God who is good will make good on all of his promises and that he will sustain us and that in the painful affliction of this life, we can look to their reversal. And when we view them from eternity, we will be able to say that they were light and momentary compared to the glory to be revealed. 
But it would be naive to suggest that this kind of certainty, this kind of hope comes easy. The reality is that God's mysterious providences often leave us confused. Why this loss? Why this diagnosis? Why this failure? What good can come from this great evil? You know, as we are disoriented by the difficulties of life, so much can seem uncertain. Well, this morning, Luke, inspired by the Spirit of God, aims at certainty for us. He wants us to have firm footing as we seek to stand in the day of testing. And so this morning, what I want to do is consider this passage of Scripture under three headings. Certainty for Theophilus, certainty for Zechariah, and certainty for the people of God. So let's look at these three together. First, we see that there is certainty for Theophilus. In verse 3, we learn that Paul, I mean that Luke, when he's writing this gospel, he has an individual in mind named Theophilus. Now, we don't know much about this man. Uh, many scholars believe he's like a member of the Roman aristocracy and that he's funding Luke's writing project. Uh, they believe this because Luke calls him most excellent Theophilus. We can also assume that Theophilus is like this new convert that's in need of some fortifying of his faith. Verse 4 says that Luke writes this gospel so that Theophilus can have certainty about the things he's been taught. Luke doesn't want Theophilus just to know what Christian teaching is. He wants him to have confidence, to have certainty that the Christian teaching that he's received is true. It's based on the facts of history. He wants to remove doubt so Theophilus can embrace with firm conviction the Christ of Scripture. You know, often when I read one-on-one with a student, read the gospel with a student one-on-one, it's like their first time reading the Bible. And it's always super exciting And uh, it doesn't take very long for questions to arise like, um, wasn't this just made up? Or is this, you know, this didn't really happen, right? And I love questions like these. This is such an important question. When we open our Bibles, is what we read history or is it mythology? Does the Bible merely contain some interesting stories that are moral lessons? Or is the Bible the infallible words of eternal life? And so Luke thinks this question is important too. So in order to show that he is writing history and what he's writing is true, he gives us a window into his process in these first four verses. He acknowledges first that other people have been writing things down. Verse 1, he says, Many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished. Why is this the case? Why are people writing things down? Why is there a market for this kind of product? Verse 1 says that these things which were accomplished were accomplished among us. From the very beginning, Christianity was a public religion. You know, many religions have started kind of like with an individual or a prophet of sort having kind of a private experience between him and God, and he would go out, and then he would try to convince and persuade people to follow his guidance. This is true from Muhammad to Joseph Smith. Jesus, on the other hand, came to us, and he did his ministry publicly. He preached publicly. He casted out demons publicly. He healed people publicly. He was crucified publicly. He was buried in a known tomb. And when he rose again from the dead, he appeared before the eyes of as many as 500 people. And since this was the case, by necessity, this created a class of people which Luke calls eyewitnesses in verse 2. 
This is a, a technical word in the Greek, atoptai. This was a special term by historians, used by historians of Luke's day. This shows us the kind of work Luke was trying to create. He is not recording stories that have been passed around and embellished over time. No, Luke is following the practice of ancient historians by writing, putting into writing the reports of eyewitnesses, which he himself gathered or was passed on to him by credible witnesses. He followed things closely, he says. He writes things orderly, he says, and he does this so that we might have certainty. Now, who were these witnesses? Where they were the family members of Jesus, the 12 disciples, those for whom Jesus casted out demons, those who Jesus healed, the several other disciples that accompanied the 12 as Jesus did his public ministry, including many women who are prominent in the resurrection accounts we find in Scripture. On the question of reliability of Luke's gospel, Theophilus can have certainty. And so, and from this, we, are, we, we must continue to affirm that the gospel that we have is historical. You know, the great New Testament scholar, J. Messam Gratian, said this. He said, Christ died. That's history. Christ died for our sins. That's doctrine. Without these two elements joined together in an absolute, inseparable union, there is no Christianity. When we open our Bibles, we must see what we're reading is not clever myths or fairy tales. We're reading the reliable Word of God, which is founded upon historical certainties. The reality is that Jesus was a man. He had friends and family. He lived in a time and place. He changed people's lives, and he has left an indelible mark upon human history. Jesus really came. He really died. He really rose again. And what Luke goes on to share in his gospel isn't speculation, it isn't mythology, it's reality. And it is good reason to have hope as we look to the future. Second, we see that there's certainty for Zechariah. So uh, Luke points us to two individuals, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And we learned a lot about them in in this passage of Scripture. But most importantly, in verse 6, we see that they were righteous. They walked blamelessly before the Lord. Zechariah and Elizabeth were the kind of people who didn't have just like a superficial morality that kind of acquaintances can see. No, they obeyed and followed the Lord in their hearts and in their homes. They were righteous, it says, before God. And yet in verse 7, we see that they had a problem. They were older and were still without child. They were barren. And this would have been considered a tragedy in their day. It was tragic economically because they wouldn't have a child to take care of them when they were old. It was tragic socially because most people assumed barrenness was always the judgment of God. And this would have impacted Elizabeth even more so. Because people in the ancient world always considered it to be the woman. Some rabbis would go on to teach that men should divorce their wives and marry so they could procreate. This would have been immensely heavy upon Elizabeth. And contrary to conventional wisdom, this was not due to her sin. She walked blamelessly before the Lord. Can you identify with Elizabeth this morning? Are you barren in some way? Have your plans been disrupted? Do you find yourself without escape? Maybe you have sent in lots of resumes, you've attended interviews, but you still can't find work. 
Or maybe you're like Elizabeth this morning and you're not able to have children. I'm not sure what heavy thing that you are facing this morning. But you must know that just because you're experiencing a difficulty does not mean you're at fault. Barrenness does not always mean blameworthy. Righteousness does not deliver us from the afflictions of this age. You know, I can't tell you why this thing is happening in your life. Elizabeth had no idea what the Lord was doing. But as we will see, her heavenly father was in control. And he was working even in the middle of this apparent tragedy for her infinite good. And not only hers, the good of the entire world. And he's doing this for you. But then in verse 8, we learn of an extraordinary opportunity for Zechariah. He is chosen to go serve in the temple. This would have been a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. He was chosen by the casting of a lot, which is a seemingly random process. But as the proverb says, the lot is cast, but every decision is made by the Lord. The Lord places Zechariah in the temple for a purpose. He has a special meeting planned for him there. In the temple, he encounters the angel. The angel says, the Lord has heard your prayer, Zechariah. Elizabeth will conceive and have a son. There will be a miraculous birth from an old and barren woman. Now, when we hear this announcement, if we're familiar with the Bible, our ears should be perking up. We should be thinking, this sounds awfully familiar. Way back in the book of Genesis, we meet Abraham and Sarah. God made great promises to Abraham and Sarah. God said, through your offspring, I will make a great nation and I will bless all the families of the earth. But the problem was is that Abraham and Sarah were old and had no children. But God, after Abraham tries to take things into his own hands with his servant Hagar, he gives them a son, Isaac, through Sarah. And it would be through Isaac that the nation of Israel would be born. But now we find ourselves at another significant point in redemptive history. The nation has grown to a vast nation, and yet they were exiled out of their promised land, and now they have returned, but they have not returned to their former glory. They are now under the thumb of the Roman Empire. They don't even have their freedom. Maybe even people even wondered, had God forsaken his people entirely? Not only were Zechariah and Elizabeth barren, the entire people of God felt as if they were a barren people. In response to this good news in verse 18, Zechariah says, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Basically, Zechariah is asking, On what basis should I believe this? Unlike Abraham, who asked God for a sign in faith, Zechariah doubts God. He looks at his old age and Elizabeth's old age, and so he cannot believe. Zechariah does not remember what God did for Abraham and Sarah. He has been praying for this, this exact thing, but he does not believe his prayer could be answered. So the angel responds with the reason he should believe. Verse 19, I am Gabriel. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring this good news. The angel basically says to Zechariah that I'm a messenger of God. God sent me, and that's sufficient grounds for you to trust this. God is trustworthy, therefore his word is as well. Nevertheless, he gives him a sign in verse 20. He will remain silent until the fulfillment of this promise. Probably more of a sign than, than he was looking for. Uh, 
But in the end, he has certainty. He has certainty that the Lord will do what he promised. And so the fundamental question that this encounter poses to us is do we have a humble trust in God? You know, Zechariah, looking at the outrageous circumstance, wanted all the facts. But, you know, ultimately, no one can have all the facts. Further, having knowledge and more facts doesn't always lead to trust in God either. It's good to want evidence for your faith. We see that from Luke's introduction here. Um, But the Bible teaches that sometimes a lack of faith isn't a problem with knowledge. It's a problem with the heart. Later in Luke, after Jesus performs many wonderful and marvelous signs among the people, the people again demand another sign. And Jesus responds with a rebuke and says, they will receive no other signs other than the sign of Jonah. It is proud to demand evidence or signs beyond what a humble heart would accept. Jesus is not critical of the pursuit of truth. He is rebuking them for their unrepentant and hard hearts because his matchless character and his mighty works were more than sufficient grounds for them to trust him as Messiah. And sometimes we doubt. And when we do, we need to investigate further to alleviate those doubts. God is merciful to doubters like us and like Zechariah. But there is a warning here not to demand an excessive amount of evidence before embracing the promises of God for ourselves. There was sufficient ground for Zechariah to have certainty. Third and finally, we see that there is certainty for the people of God. As this is all going on in the temple, people are outside praying in verse 11, we see this. And in verse 21, they begin to wonder, like, what's taking such a long time? You know, drawing near to the most holy place was sometimes precarious. The presence of God was a consuming fire, and so they were getting worried. But after Zechariah comes out unable to speak, they discern that he had received a vision, a vision of sort. This, what, the substance of the vision kind of remains private because he's not able to speak. But after her service ends, they go home, and Elizabeth conceives. And she hides herself away for five months. Elizabeth praises God but doesn't recognize the broader significance of the birth of John the Baptist. She says in verse 25, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. She sees this as a personal reversal of her circumstances. But God was coming to remove the reproach of the entire people of God. Verse 17, we see that John will have a mission. The job of John the Baptist is to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He would be like Elijah. He would come and he would warn people of the judgment of God. John would fulfill that prophecy in Malachi, which said, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. God was removing reproach, but it wasn't just the reproach of Zechariah and Elizabeth. He came to remove the reproach of the entire people of God. I once read a story about a college student who had to make uh, and do an assignment for his uh, public speaking class. The assignment was to teach a lesson and to drive home the point in like a powerful way. And so the student decided to give a talk on the law of the pendulum. And so he spent like 20 minutes explaining the law. The law is this, a pendulum can never return to a point higher than the point from which it was released. 
And so he explained the physical principles that govern the, the, uh, the swinging of the pendulum. He talked about friction and gravity and how at the end the pendulum always rests in the center in equilibrium. And so to illustrate this, he made like a three-foot pendulum with like a child's toy and he, and he, he dropped the pendulum and against a, mark, a marker board and he made marks for every swing showing how the, the, the distance uh, got smaller each time. And so after he finished his presentation, he asked everyone in the room, who here believes in the law of the pendulum? And so everyone raises their hand, including the, the professor. But this is when things got interesting. Uh, he asked his instructor to uh, climb up on the table and sit in a chair with his head next to a brick wall. And then he revealed hanging from the metal beams above a, another pendulum. It was... Uh, a pendulum made of 500-pound parachute cord, and at the bottom of it were about 250 pounds of metal plates. And so he takes the plates and he moves it right to the face of his instructor, and he says to him, if the law of the pendulum is true, when I release this massive metal, it will swing across the room and return just short of the release point. Your nose will not be in danger. And so looking at the teacher in his eyes, he asked him, Sir, do you believe in the law of the pendulum? <laughs> there was a long pause, kind of beads of sweat began to form on his professor's faith, face, and he like very softly said, yes. And at that, the student released the pendulum, and it swooshed across the room, briefly pausing on the other side, and as it began to make its way back, the, the professor dove on the ground <laughs> in a rush of great fear. The student turned to his classmates and says, does this man believe in the law of the pendulum? You know, one day we might find ourselves, or one day we will find ourselves in a test. We know the truth, but where will we get certainty? Where will we get the conviction to stand in the face of suffering? What is the source of certainty for the people of God? You know, even now as we contemplate the miraculous birth of John. Our eyes are drawn forward to the miraculous birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The indisputable evidence that the Lord has not forsaken his people. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of God and the certification that God has not forsaken his people. How can we fortify our hearts to know for certain that God is for us even when the situation around us feels so dim. You know, I'll close with two words of application. First, we need to remind ourselves of the great things God has done. You know, the name Zechariah means God has remembered. The problem with Zechariah is that he has not remembered the great things God has done in Abraham's life or in the life of Israel. And because he did not remember, his faith faltered. We as well need to remember the great, thing God's, the great things God has done, and God has indeed done great things. Jesus has entered into our world. He has followed the law perfectly on our behalf and secured for us the rewards of his obedience. He has died on the cross for sin, bearing the very curse of God in our place, and he has risen again from the dead, securing for us eternal life. If God gave to us his only son, he will certainly give to us all things. We need, to, we need to remind ourselves of the great things God has done. 
Secondly, we need to see that community is at the center of the plan of God. John came to make a people prepared for the Lord, not just individuals. Certainty is not experienced through an individual pursuit of truth, but being a part of a covenant community. It is through participation in this community, through communion with God, through worship and through prayer, that God takes the truth of Scripture and seals them on our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to see that community is at the center of the plan of God. As we have gathered here together this morning, God wants to give you hope. He wants to give you hope. He wants to give you certainty. He is reversing the curse, not just for you, but for the people of God. He is removing reproach, our reproach, the reproach of his people. There is certainty for Theophilus. There is certainty for Zechariah and the people of God. And as you look into the unknown future, there is certainty for you. If you have placed your life in the hands of Christ Jesus, in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, we confess that our faith is often weak, but you are strong and Christ is strong and we place all of our hope in him. Fortify our hearts this morning. Be with us who are suffering with doubt and suffering with difficulties in this life. Give us strength, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.